Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today we have a bit of a special episode. You see, normally this would be the part of the show where I introduce my guests by talking about what makes them a Terranaut. Well, I can't do that today because my guest isn't a Terranaut. He is, in fact, an astronaut. He has spent over 150 days outside the Earth's atmosphere. He's helped construct two different space stations on orbit, and he served as the commander of one of them, the International Space Station, in 2013. He is, of course, Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. Chris, welcome to Terranauts. It's my pleasure to be talking to you, Ian. Thank, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, me too. So I wanted to start actually by talking about um, the days before you actually got to orbit. Um, I, I, you know, you were an astronaut and had graduated as a mission specialist, but every astronaut spends a bit of time, you know, learning the trade, working on the ground, helping other people get to space. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit about how your career started that way. Sure. You know, one of the common questions I get, Ian, is, well, what do you do in between space flights? And, and I, I kind of wonder, geez, do people think I'm like sitting in the passenger waiting room or something, you know, waiting for, right. for my number to get called again? Um, it, it's uh, an enormous organization that allows us to safely fly in space. And it requires a huge number of different types of skills and people, right from the medical staff, the psychological staff, the mission designers, the public relations people, the, the budget people. But astronauts also play a, a bunch of different significant ground roles. And as you say, as a brand new astronaut, when you, you've just done your basic astronaut training to give yourself the minimum level of qualifications to maybe get assigned to a space flight, how does the space agency uh, get their money's worth out of you, but also uh, use that time to sort of teach you? And, and I had a few jobs in that time from when I was first selected as an astronaut back in 1992 and then went through the one year of astronaut candidate training, the, the, one of the jobs I got to go do right away was to help other people launch to space and come back to Earth. And it was all on the space shuttle down at, uh, at the Cape, Cape Canaveral or the Kennedy Space Center. And, and the, even the name uh, is, is kind of intriguing. Uh, because we were at the Cape, Everyone sort of chose the Superman theme of calling us Cape Crusaders, and which then got shortened because of NASA's love for acronyms to be a C squared. And it, it wasn't even a funny word anymore. You're just a C squared. You're a Cape Crusader, one of those people working at the Cape. So for, for a couple of years in between the time I was selected and when I first flew in space, I was a Cape Crusader, a C squared helping to get crews and spaceships ready to launch, and then being that person climbing into the cockpit and, uh, and welcoming crews right after they landed to help them start their readjustment back to Earth again. Pretty amazing job, and, and I learned a lot. 
So you were literally the last person that that a, a crew member, an astronaut would see before they left and the first person that they would see when they got back. Yeah, there's a couple really cool aspects to that, Ian, before launch. One is um, there have been thousands of people at the Kennedy Space Center getting that space shuttle out on the launch pad, pointed at the sky and with everything loaded and ready to go. But at some point, all of the engineers and preparatory people need to give it to the crew. And we're sort of the intermediaries. A couple days before launch, we sign for the space shuttle and we take over the cockpit. And and we sort of call it babysitting the space shuttle, but nobody can go in there from then on. And all of the final switch positioning, that's done by a, a C-squared, an astronaut like myself. And every checklist gets put into position. So it's a really cool thing, maybe uh, one day before a space shuttle is going to space, that you're going to go out and spend six hours inside that spaceship where it's quiet, um, where everything's real, uh, and where you're, you're putting the final touches on that spacecraft, getting ready for the moment when the actual crew is coming out to get in, to, to, uh, uh, to get ready to go to space. And, and as you say, it's us then that... that straps them in, that that makes sure that all the harnesses are done up properly, that hooks up all their communication and, and breathing connections, and, and even to the point of passing them often a little handwritten note that came from their, their husband or, the, or their wife, and, and, uh, and, you know, maybe a little kiss on the forehead um, as a, as a, a once-removed wish of, uh, of goodwill before they're getting ready to space. It's something that, that most people don't see, but it's a vital and really interesting part of the process. And it was a great place for me to learn what it's like in the cockpit of a space shuttle just a, a, a day before launch, what it sounds like, the hum of the machinery, the smell of the equipment, the, the fragility of everything, the care you have to have, and the deliberate understanding of what each of the 500 switches does so you can get everything just right so that uh, the crew has the greatest chance of successfully making it to space. Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, you know, who 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 follow the space program, even follow it closely on the news, only ever hear sort of the very uh, structured, formal, uh, mechanical processes and procedures, and 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 don't realize just how much of a human touch there is in a lot of that. And that's, I'm glad we talked about it because that's one of the things that reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is to is to make the point that you know the space program is still made up of, of people, um, and that's in some ways what makes it interesting and and just like one other thing in at the launch pad there of course it's not just the astronaut but there's the closeout crew there's the guys the experts in the white room um people that have that's their 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 main profession and that's been going on since the mercury days and gemini and apollo um where there's someone there that is they're they're they're, the thing that rolls off their assembly line is is a space shuttle that is ready for the crew to get into. And, and so there's a great camaraderie and, and a sense of mutual respect between those people that are there up on the launch pad with you who are making sure everything's just right, who, who, who really want to make sure that every strap is pulled tight, uh, working with the astronauts, both the, the C-squareds like myself, and the crew that's getting strapped in to get ready to go. So yeah, they are 
sort of halfway between uh, an earthling and a spaceling, maybe maybe the, the truest Terranauts of all. Yeah, for sure. Well, so let's talk a little bit about preparing for uh, spaceflight. I think maybe another thing that a lot of people who haven't worked in the business don't understand is just how long you spend getting ready for any spaceflight. So your first flight was STS-74, launched, depending on when we publish this, probably just about exactly 24 years to the day from when right. this will come out. Um, so you launched in November 1995. When did you know you were going to be on that flight? You know, the, the knowing is a curious psychological thing because I had intended to be on a space flight ever since I was nine years old. I mean, <laughs> I, I had decided that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know how to get there, at least not, not clearly. I knew that there were certain things I was going to have to do. I was going to have to... Uh, grow up. I was going to have to get university degrees. I was going to have to learn to fly, you know, keep my body in shape, all sorts of things that, that were going to be necessary to, to qualify me to fly in space. So when, when you when you start talking about how what did you do to get ready, how long did it take? For me, I honestly think it started when, when I was nine years old, just turning 10. And some of the periods were very quiet. And then and then a threshold would come where like I got my wings to become a pilot or I decided to join the Air Force and become a fighter pilot and then a test pilot or, or do another university degree to try and get myself selected. All of those, I, I felt like I was climbing a pyramid. And I, I could see up at the top was a space flight, but there were all of these steps and I couldn't even see all of the steps from where I was, but I just knew that this next step in front of me was one I somehow had to raise my figurative leg over and, and get myself one step closer to where I was going to be. And, and probably the biggest one was when the Canadian Space Agency advertised nationally that they were having an astronaut recruitment. I, I knew that it, I had to get over that threshold or, or this was never going to happen at all. And really, all of the previous steps, even though they'd taught me a lot of things, they were just the, the compulsories, the, the necessary things to get myself to be uh, competitive so that when I raised my hand back in, in 91, 92, that they, the Canadian Space Agency would notice me uh, enough that they would evaluate me and see if, if I was what they were looking for to then bet their money on me and start training me. Then even that process took, took almost half a year, just the selection process. But it all boiled down to getting a phone call from the Canadian Space Agency um, saying, we would like you to be one of our astronauts and, and forever taking me to another level of that pyramid that, that, uh, that otherwise I, I never could have done on my own. But that was really just the start of astronaut training. It, it may have taken 20 odd years, but it was really just to get to that next very difficult to attain, attain level. And from the day that I was hired in the spring of 1992 to the day that I showed up for work down at the Johnson Space Center on the 3rd of August, 1992, it wasn't until, as you say, uh, mid-November of 1995 that I was actually in a spaceship ready to go. And every single one of those three and a third years uh, worth of days was spent in training and preparation, almost like... Uh, another whole university degree, studying orbital mechanics, studying control theory, 
studying uh, space shuttle systems and the most complex flying machine ever built, um, studying all of the the operations. How does how do you work with mission control? How do communications work? How how does all this stuff fit together? When you push the microphone in the space shuttle, how does your voice actually get to the ear of of the Capcom down in Mission Control in Houston? How does all that stuff function? What happens medically to your body on board? How you know how the 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 immensity of number of things? What happens if someone gets a toothache when you're on board the space shuttle in space? How who who has the medical training to deal with it? The, the matrix of stuff that we needed to learn and become technically competent at was staggering. And that's what I worked on every single day for, for three and a third years so that on November 12th, whatever it was, of 95, I could be the person lying on my back, um, wearing my orange launch suit, uh, getting strapped into the space shuttle, uh, getting ready for for my turn to uh, to leave Earth. It's a huge, daunting process, and, um, and and one that astronauts take very seriously, and one that NASA and all the other space agencies really focus on to launch with their crews as ready as possible for all of the unforeseen things that might happen. Yeah, and so once you get assigned to to the crew, so once once you're actually uh, the crew gets formed, uh, you know, probably more than a year in advance of the flight, uh, and then you start to embark on on a very regimented um, uh, regime of of training, and and in fact, the you know the team actually starts to expand and expand because there's a lot of people on the ground who are going to be with you not only for the, the the week or two weeks in space, but for the entire 14 months of your training as well. Right? There's yeah, often and, people the whole time. You're right. I mean, you finish astronaut candidate training and you feel like you're somebody, but in fact, all that was was gave you one step towards being eligible to get assigned to a space flight. And then I worked on a lot of advanced training after that, Russian language training and other systems and and uh, being a C-squared down at the Cape and working payload safety review. And then I got a call from the head of the astronaut office saying, we're assigning you to an actual space flight, and these are going to be your crewmates. And so now you transition from sort of generic ground support work within the astronaut office to being one of the crews that is getting trained. And, and now you need to build a whole new support network of, of people that are going to be, as you say, making this happen. The, the crew in mission control, the lead flight director who's going to be responsible for your flight, who, who has to know every aspect of it. Um, the, the CAPCOM and all of the specialists in mission control are going to be working with you. And then all of your training team. There's not only a, a team that is going to make sure that you've you've seen everything you need to see at this enormous matrix where they have to put a little X in every single square that the crew has seen this and been qualified at it. But they even have sort of a, a, a countering training team that that is constantly developing problems that you need to see malfunctions. They're, they're like sort of the the adversary team that that. Uh, rings out every for your particular mission which in our case was going to help build the russian space station mir they had to devise all of the devious things that could go wrong and then when we were in the simulator um 
give them to us so that we could see them, we could you know get them wrong a few times, and then learn how to get them right in the steadily building uh, enormity of, of complexity to, to do it. And in our case, of course, that included uh, bringing Russian hardware on an American spaceship assembled with a Canadian arm and attaching it to a Russian spaceship. Uh, we had to travel to Russia and train with the designers of the uh, of the docking mechanism had to go to star city and and go through all of the basic understanding of how that operation was going to work we went to russian mission control and and got to know their flight director and their their capsule communicators or or what they call glavnys uh, prime operators and so the the scheduling is just a nightmare, and and we we are so much in the hands of our trainers and, and our our crew schedulers. We become almost like this little microcosm of humanity, as if we're we're a baby in a womb, and we have all of these doctors and midwives who are who are trying to nurture us so that on launch day, on delivery day, we're a healthy, bouncing uh, crew of of astronauts ready to go. Yeah. Well, like I, you know, just to put it in perspective, I think you've told a story before about about finding an apple in one of the resupply flights and and thinking about just how many people had to touch how many things and forms and and procedures in order to get that little piece of fruit into your hands. Yeah. on board the spaceship, the food is pretty um, uh, predictable. It's a lot of sort of like military rations and dehydrated food, food that keeps for a long time, practical um, food for, for a spaceship, which makes sense. Thermostabilized, uh, irradiated, dehydrated. But the little resupply ships that come up, the ones that bring up uh, new equipment and experiments and things, the thoughtful support people on Earth realize that the crew on board, they're just people. And, and it would be really nice to send them a small gift. And one of the really nice gifts is, is some fresh food. And so just before they close the hatch on those resupply ships, whether it comes from the United States or Japan or Europe or Russia, they will put in a little package of, of fresh fruit or, or maybe a few candies. And when that ship comes up and docks, you know, everybody's busy and doing a million things and and docking is often very technically complicated and and goes wrong occasionally. But when it docks successfully and we equalize the pressure and we open the hatch, it is such a, a shared delight when the first smell you get is of apples or oranges or onions or lemons or something this this um this natural touch of home and and one of those flights um when i was living on the space station they had sent up a few green apples beautiful big uh green apples and we we shared them amongst the crew and i remember holding that apple in front of myself and floating it weightless and contemplating it because here it was this humble apple was now going eight kilometers a second, and it was floating weightless. And I just started backing up the life of this apple, sort of like backing up my own life. How did how did it get here? You know how how did it come to be floating in this incredibly unusual environment? It took a huge amount of um, of technical know-how to build a machine that could accelerate it from zero up to uh, Mach 25 uh, and to get it up there in a safe and a breathable environment. But I even took it all the way back to the person who had planted the apple tree, never knowing 
that one of their apples, just, you know, like my parents or whatever, that one of their apples was going to end up uh, being on a spaceship. And the person whose job it was to, to take care of that tree and prune it. And then that year, someone picked that apple and, and put it through the normal earth market for sale. And it just happened that someone in the space business bought that apple. And then that apple had a whole future existence or a different existence of being transported from Moscow, where it was bought, flown down to the Baikonur Cosmodrome, specially packaged, cleaned to make sure it didn't bring any fungus up to the space station, thoughtfully placed in a little package, put on board a progress rocket, wildly accelerated, automated systems docking. And there it is floating in front of me as I grabbed it and took an extremely appreciative bite of that apple, thanking everybody along the entire chain that, that allows us to do this. And there was a whole lot of people in there that ended up being Terranauts who never even knew they were. That's true. But of them ended up in space. Yeah. So, so, so let's, let's talk a little bit about being in space. We talk a lot about and have talked a lot about communication from the ground to orbit because those are the people I talk to. But, but in point of fact, there's a whole other aspect of that. When, when you're up on, uh, on orbit, there, there are different ways of communicating with the ground that, that maybe a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of. Uh, and, and that's a very important aspect for people who live in space. It is. Obviously, we have the people in mission control. And, and for my first couple flights, which were on the shuttle, our mission control was Houston. Uh, when, when we called on the radio, we wouldn't say mission control. The first words out of our, our mouth would be Houston, Atlantis, or Houston, Endeavor, because that's where our our trusted agents were. That's where our ground support was. That's where our team of, of expertise was. Um, but that's that's increased in size over time. There's a mission control in Moscow, and and you would call down, you would say Moscow instead of Houston. But there's also one in Montreal at the Canadian Space Agency. There's one just outside of Mo- outside of Munich. There's one in um, just outside of Tokyo, and so you could be saying, you know, uh, Tokyo, or you could be saying, you know, Europe or Germany or whomever, and and so. How does that even happen when you when you push the button? How does even that happen? The the combination of of the the antenna on the space station or the space shuttle going up to a relay satellite that's that's twenty thousand miles from the Earth and then bouncing off that relay satellite and then through some sort of huge antenna farm on Earth and then maybe bounced once again again to another antenna farm and then through landlines and into telephone networks and finally coming to the Capcom at the mission control that you're talking to that that's just for the regular formal communication. But when I was on my first flight, in order to talk to my family, we used an entirely separate mechanism and that was using ham radio in the window of the space shuttle. We had this little antenna and and just the sort of little amateur radio equipment that you would have if if you just went to an electronics store and wanted to be able to talk to other ham radio operators around the world. And from that little ham radio on board the space shuttle, I could push the button and it would just go down to earth and anybody with their little ham radio antenna might be able to hear me and respond. You can imagine how much of the earth it can see. So you could be talking to hundreds of people simultaneously. But sometimes there was someone who lived away from everybody else on the coast of Newfoundland or maybe in the outback of Australia 
who you could talk to for a minute or two and nobody else would interrupt. And those were the people that would allow me to talk to my family. I, w- I would know I was coming up on, on uh, Werner, who had this great big antenna on the coast of Newfoundland. And he would have negotiated. Yeah, he would have negotiated with with uh, NASA and various people. He would have it set up, and he would have the phone number of my family. And as I came over the horizon, somewhere around uh, Toronto, so that I could start to see clearly to to Werner outside of St. John's, then he would set up the links, patching my radio transmission through to my family, and he would then be enabling the switching. So that my family could call and, and I could call, and so that my son, who uh, as was at boarding school in uh, in Ontario, he could then standing by a payphone of all things, um, be waiting uh, and have me or Werner telephone this payphone. My son would pick up and say hello, and when my son would say hello, it would go through all the Canadian telephone lines, get to this ham radio operator, maybe in Australia or, or in the east coast of Canada. And then that would be sent up as the space shuttle just happened to be going over top of that part of the world so that I could hear my son's voice. And then I could push my button and Werner or whomever would do the reverse for me so that we could have communications. It, it seems simple, but it, 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 rewired, it required kind of the not only the edge of technology at the time, but also willing uh, terranauts, willing people who were trying to be part of the space program to enable uh regular human interaction right at its most necessary level that between family members who are far apart yeah so so we don't have much more time but there was one thing that i i wanted to talk about and it you know it's about uh willing people who are willing to be part of of the program you know when you flew on sds 74 helping put together helping put you know bring an american space shuttle to a russian space station that was literally 5 years from the time that the berlin wall went down uh, and and in fact uh, i think i read on wikipedia that early in an earlier part of your career you were one of the first canadian fighter pilots to ever intercept a russian bear bomber in a cf18 fighter jet so the paradigm shift from there to joining the russians in their their little home in space i think is is a lot starker than people now realize. And, and I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what, what was that like and, and why, why did it work? Because it, it really did. In, um, in, uh, in the cold war, of course, it was, uh, the two great superpowers of the world, the United States and the Soviet union, um, were fighting a war, but without bloodshed, or at least without uh, significant bloodshed, uh, a constant, a battle of wills backed up by military might. Um, but in reality, maintaining sort of a, a, a delicate peace for, for decades at a time. But in order to do that, it, it still required proof of military capability. And as part of that constant testing and probing of proof of each other's military capability, the the Soviets would fly their big bear bombers uh out of northern Russia or Soviet Union and down the coast of North America, sometimes just on the way down to Cuba and sometimes to practice cruise missile launches on North America. And um, as a Canadian fighter pilot and part of North American Air Defense, NORAD, 
I would get scrambled. We held 24-hour alert. I would get, the horn would go off with this great glaring sleep disrupting noise. We'd race out to our F-18s. We would have slept half dressed, jump into it. You had to be airborne in 12 minutes from a dead sleep to be flying a fighter in, in 12 minutes, and then take it out and go intercept the Soviet bears off the coast. Me and my armed F-18 with this huge rumbling piece of Soviet technology um, as I approached up to it, delicately maneuvering and rendezvousing with it to, to assess its intent, to show not only what it was intending to do, but also um, Canada as part of NORAD, our ability to defend ourselves and recognize what was happening. Kind of the pointy edge of technology but for very militaristic purposes. And I got to do that. As you say, I was the first F-18 to ever intercept um, Soviet bombers uh, uh, as, part of the, as part of the Cold War. But that was in 1985 through 1988. And yet, seven years later, I was on board, just sort of like an F-18. I was on board a big piece of American technology, Space Shuttle Atlantis. Um, I was the Canadian component of it, myself and the first Canadian to use Canadarm to try and build this piece of Soviet or Russian hardware on top of the American space shuttle and then be part of the crew that flew, that found this big lumbering Russian aerospace vehicle, the Russian space station Mir orbiting the world and flying Atlantis up and rendezvousing with it much as I had back in 85. But in this case, docking with Mir, turning literally and figuratively those programs all into one, creating what became shuttle Mir, uh, one flying vehicle going around the world. Uh, and, and then opening the hatches between the two and, and sharing ideas, having meals together, transporting vital equipment back and forth, um, and then at the end of it, undocking from Mir and leaving Mir now with a big docking port so that from now on, shuttles could come and go. And to me, having been right on the pointy edge of the spear both times, having been right out there on the edge in my armed F-18, kind of pushing the limits of our technology and our ability to to express ourselves internationally. And then again in 95, uh, as the first only Canadian ever go to Mir, the same thing, but, but under a different set of inter, intergovernmental agreements, a different set of cultural norms, those nations now joining together under peaceful circumstances and purposes to collectively try and figure out how to start to explore and settle the rest of the universe. And they're, they're related, but uh, I really am glad to have seen both, but I'm also very grateful that we, that we went from one to the other, or, th or that we aren't just militaristic, that we can actually see with a subset of our population and our efforts that, um, that there are some things that are really worth doing together, despite ideological and cultural differences. And, and the space station is the child of all that, the International Space Station, a wonderful, shining example, not just for the crews on board, but for every Terranaut around the world who can look up and see that, that light of the space station going over, a, a shining example of what we can do together when we do things right. 
Right. And, and, and I think the point is that it's, you know, it's not just the international crew that lives on the space station, but there are literally thousands of Americans, Canadians, Russians, Japanese, and Europeans who have to work together every day to keep the shuttle there and to keep people continuously in space. And the International Space Station is a continuous exercise in international cooperation. And, and I think maybe that's underappreciated. Yeah. And, and we, you know, it was conceived of in the, in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union and the, and the Berlin Wall, um, some very far-thinking individuals realized, okay, this, this has happened, but how can we use this as a way to improve communications, to improve cooperation? And as a result of that, uh, the very first cosmonauts showed up for training in Houston, Texas uh, in 93. And, and we, as American and Canadian astronauts, started going over and training in Star City, Russia, uh, in 93, 94. My first trip was in 94. And we have been working right from the top all the way down to individual people in all the different space organizations. We've been working hand in glove, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, continuously for uh, 25 years. In, in amongst all the other posturing and noise and and um, militaristic and, and nationalistic things that happen and all of the comings and goings of politics and economics and such. Meanwhile, we are exploring and settling space together. And, and uh, sometimes it gets lost in the daily noise, I think. But it takes, as you say, the, the goodwill and the cooperative hard work of thousands of people all around the world every single day in order to make that happen. And, and it's something um, everyone should marvel at a little bit and, and be thankful for. Right. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to end this podcast than on that note. So uh, I'm going to say thank you for coming on on Terranauts, but also thank you for sharing the stories, but also thank you for all that you have done uh, for Canada and, and for humanity in terms of settling space. It has been a real honor and a privilege to speak to you today. Um, and um, I'm sure that we'll be seeing you around uh, for a good long time to Thanks, come. Thanks, Ian. And uh, I appreciate all the work that you and I did together here on Earth to make spaceflight possible. As one of the few Canadians who's actually been an astronaut and left the Earth, I am very grateful now to be back on terra firma and, and be another Terranaut who's, uh, who's looking to work, support spaceflight, and inspire the astronauts of the future. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Ian. Nice to talk with you. Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.